Welcome to our podcast, a little different approach to beginning our, our podcast from week to week. But this week we have uh, just finished Easter and I thought it might be helpful to give you a little bit of a, a, a preparation for where we're going in the service. It's a little different in that we're, it's a bit disjointed with you listening uh, just by audio or whether you're looking, uh, watching by video. Uh, we've really divided the service into different points, and I want to make that clear, help you understand how that works. So it'll sound just a little disjointed, but I'll explain as I go through this. We, uh, we began the service with a, with a video piece that, that kind of made clear how we're starting the service. And uh, the point is, is that Easter, it recognizes the most incredible event, the most controversial person in all of the world. His claim subject of the greatest controversy in the history of all the world. His genealogy takes us to the earliest and longest family feud, leaving the world crippled by the fear of tomorrow. All rooted in religious difference, all centered around one controversy, the controversy of the person of Jesus. And why is that? The answer, he claimed to be God. I had the opportunity to kind of lay out where we're going for the service, and I want, I want you to understand that as well. In light of this controversy, we want to ask, uh, we want to dig down a little bit, understand why would that controversy be the way it is? How can it be so divisive? One individual person. We're going to explore four aspects of the person of this one who called himself the Christ, called himself the Messiah the one that would be deliverer for all mankind. Well, we take each part of four aspects of this one, his birth, his life, his death, and then his resurrection. And we've set each apart by the use of some liturgy. Actually, it's a responsive reading. And though you'll miss the responsive reading as it's cut out, it's uh, intersected with the music and so forth, uh, each part took a, an aspect of his life. We actually are using a liturgy that was written by Michael Card, a songwriter and, uh, and, and singer, very noted. Uh, in his book, Violent Grace, it'd be worth looking up, a great liturgy. And we took that liturgy and divided it into those four aspects and used it using songs as well. Uh, I'm indebted to, to Tim Keller, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, maybe longer. I remember uh, hearing some insights on the, the prophecies of, of uh, Jesus coming to this earth and so forth. It made a real I really just never forgot it, thought about it through all these years. I don't know that it was original to him, some of the things that were shared, but they certainly imprinted the way I was thinking as I came in to prepare this uh, particular message. But uh, as Easter, we celebrate uh, what I'm convinced is the most meaningful time for the Christian church. However, the resurrection does not really become meaningful in and of itself unless you understand that birth, the life, which includes his teachings, death, then the resurrection comes alive. And so I hope what we're going to do here today is going to serve as a, a key to unlock each of these areas. I'm going to use three words, one each for the birth, the life, and then the death of Jesus. And each word I hope is going to serve as a key to unlock each of those areas. The words that I have chosen are these. It's going to be first, signature, we write our name. Number two, sign. There's a sign on the road, we see that sign. It tells us what direction we're to go. And the third 
is sword. And I think you'll see why I use those three when we get to Scripture. But each of those three, hopefully a key to unlock, but I hope it's more than that. I hope it serves as a word picture that will be a memory aid for even our young people and everyone that they can remember, oh, I know now the life and work of Jesus can be summarized in three words, and then the resurrection becomes glorious. Easter recognizes the most incredible event and the most controversial person in all of history. Jesus. His claim is the subject of the greatest controversy in the history of the world. His genealogy takes us to the genesis of the earliest and longest existing family feud of mankind. Leaving the world at large crippled by the fear of tomorrow. All rooted in religious difference. All ultimately centered around the controversy of one person, Jesus. Why? Because he claimed to be God. You know, you watch this, and uh, there is a lot of controversy around that name, Jesus. What we want to do this week, weekend, as we have these services, is to uh, explore whether you're a believer, a follower of Christ, whether you're investigating the claims of Christ. Uh, one thing we'd like to look at is why such a divisive person? How did it happen as such? I think in doing so, we're going to understand a whole lot about this story of Easter. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, we're going to follow through four aspects of the one that we know of as the Christ. We're going to look at his birth, and then we're going to look at his life, we'll look at his death, and then we'll look at his resurrection. And we're going to set each of these apart with what's called liturgy. It's really going to be a responsive reading, but it is a liturgical reading. It's one that's uh, been written by a man, Michael Card. Some of you are familiar with his works. Great writer, songwriter, singer. And in his book, Violent Grace, he has this liturgy. And we've chosen to use it to kind of set apart each aspect of the person of this one called the Christ. You know, the resurrection is somewhat meaningless without an understanding of his birth, his life, and his death. It means very little. On the other hand, we can say this, when you begin to understand his birth, his life, and his death, then the resurrection begins to make a lot of sense. Not just that it happened, but the meaning by what happened because he rose from the dead. To capture the meaning of those three, birth, life, and death, I'm going to give you a a key word that captures the heart and meaning of each of those three. I hope you young people here will remember these three. Now, we're not going to do what we do on Christmas Eve, but at the same time, these are important. Hope you can remember them for a long time. They'll serve as keys. 
Kind of like a key unlocks a door, and this is a door of understanding in all three of these areas, birth, life, and death, so that we can understand the resurrection. It's also going to be a word picture. And the word picture is going to give us the opportunity to have a memory aid so that as we think of this one word, it'll launch us into a reality of understanding that hopefully is going to benefit all of us this Easter and beyond. Those three words that I'm going to use are these. First of all, signature. You write your signature. Number one, signature. Number two is the word sign, like you would see a sign on a road. A sign that gives direction. Number three is the word sword. And all three come right out of the Scriptures. So what I want to do is first, let's look at his birth. And you look at the first of the main truths that we want to cover today. If you have them in your outline, you'll see them on the screen. It reads like this. At his birth, Jesus' signature revealed who he was. If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. Now, we somewhat are reviewing what's been taught here through the years on Christmas and Christmas Eve services. The reality is that there was great controversy about this person, Jesus, before He was ever brought on this earth, long before. You see, there were prophecies. And these prophecies were given, and people would hear the prophecies, and someone would start declaring their beliefs, and they would be in a group of people that held these beliefs. And other people say, I don't hold that belief, and I'm not in that people group. And next thing you know, you had all of these divisions beginning, simply because of a prophecy that there was going to be this one person that was going to come who was known as Messiah. Lot of debate. I believe, I don't believe, and so forth. But let me tell you, at the birth of Jesus, that controversy intensified beyond measure. And it all came around his signature, or what we'll call his name, just because of his name. Now, it's interesting, as we read the text, let's just read Matthew 1, 21. File on the screens if you have your Bibles, hopefully open to Matthew 1.21. Here's what's happened prior to this verse. It's a traditional story. We all know the, the, uh, the Christmas story. Here's Mary, and Mary is visited by the Holy Spirit and told, you know, you have conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph finds out. They're engaged, and he finds out, and he says, oh boy, I'm breaking up with you, lady. You've gone too far now. And she says, no, 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 no. This is what happened. And he can't believe it until an angel visits with him. And this is what we read in verse 21 as the angel is talking to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. You see, when we name our babies today, we do it for probably one of two reasons. Number one, maybe it's a family name, and we want to keep the family in there and please a parent or or maybe honor the parent, whatever it may be. Many will name their child simply because they love the sound. There was somebody that they used to know by that name, or they liked the name back when, whatever it is, an old girlfriend, you want to, no, I hope not. But (laughs) there are all different methods and reasons for naming the way we do. Now, back in the day of Jesus, Much, much different. It all had to do with identity. It was by the name that you identified who this person would be. 
Now, the reality was there were two things that made naming so important. Number one, it had to do with who named that person. Number two, what is the meaning of the name? And it's interesting, it is both of these that brought such a divided mindset among the peoples of the day. Because his signature, his name, was not given by Joseph and Mary, was given by God Himself. And the name itself, the very meaning was to bring a divided mindset among the people. So you look at your outline, two reasons the people were so divided and hated. I mean, literally, some of them hated this Jesus because it meant by the signature that He would carry that we can't manage Jesus. There was an understanding that God had named this little baby. You see, Joseph and Mary couldn't. Whoever did the naming, they did the managing. You think about it this way. Adam, when Adam came along, Adam and Eve, and God said, okay, you go name the animals. What did He then tell them? You are to rule over the animal world. A king would defeat another king, and the first thing he would do, he'd change the name of that king. He said, I'm giving you a new name, and it's going to be the evidence to all that I manage you. I don't care if you have been a king, you're going to be managed. Parents, they manage the child that they name. In this case, couldn't be. Couldn't be Joseph. Couldn't be Mary. Only only God can manage this Jesus, His own Son. Very important to understand. You see, the truth of it is, we really don't like that which we cannot manage. Here's a little test. Honest, honest, honest. How many of you people here say, I like dogs? Raise your hand if you say, I like dogs. All right, probably most all. Watch this. How many of you like cats? Mm-hmm, told you so. Now, what's the difference? They're both little animals. They're about the same size, some of them. And, and well, you know the difference. You can't manage that cat. <laughs> that cat does whatever he or she wants to do. I was in college, and my roommate got a little kitten, and we thought that was the cutest little kitten. And you never knew whose chest he'd be laying on in the morning when you woke up. I remember one morning I looked up. I didn't have anything against cats. And I looked up, and I heard this purring sound, and I opened my eyes. And there was this cute little kitten sitting on my chest, just purring. All I did was just look up and say, hello, kitty. <laughs> and I, <laughs> blood across my face. I don't like cats. Now, people accuse me. People accuse me of not liking dogs. I love dogs. But I'll be honest, I don't like cats. And the reason is you can't control those things. You can't. <laughs> hey, never forget this. There's a reason that our Jesus was called the Lion of Judah. You don't manage Him. He manages us. We don't seem to like the things that we can't manage or control. There's a second thing in that name. Just the name itself. As your outline says, we can't save ourselves. The word is Ishua. Ishua. We know him as Jesus. Literally, it simply says, salvation is of the Lord. 
That was a declaration that divided people. Because what he's saying is, you've got to understand this. You can't take care of yourself. I'm going to have to take care of you. You can't save yourself. And every one of us has something innately within us that says, now look, I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody else. And believe it or not, the wings, oh, we, we, know, we, we know God's got to save us. Yeah, but let me tell you, there's something innately within us that says, I want to be my own savior, meaning I want to be the one that determines my future. I'll lead my own life. And many of us saying, I don't like the way God directs. I'm not sure I like where he's taking me. I don't know. I can trust in me. I don't know if I can trust in you. And all of a sudden, salvation is of the Lord. Let me tell you. That meant it was what he would do that would save us, not what we do. It would be his merit. It wouldn't be our own goodness. It'd be his mercy. It wouldn't be our own works. I mean, everything was about what he would do for us. And there's something innately in us that says, oh, I don't like that. And so what happens is we say, I don't want, I don't want somebody to manage me. I don't want somebody to save me. But let me conclude this portion on his birth by simply saying, folks, let no one manage you. Let nothing manage you but God himself through Christ. Don't let your work manage you. And that's what's happening with a lot of us. Don't let your relationships manage you. Don't let your pleasures, your dreams, your hopes, don't let those things manage you. They'll leave you empty forever. And so people divide it. But what about the people that stay neutral? Well, there are people that know his name is Jesus. They know the meaning of the, the Oh, but they stay neutral. They don't understand the meaning. They don't understand what's required in being managed by Jesus. Or oh, there'll be a division. They really will. It'll be a division between those who would say, I understand the meaning of the signature, and in spite of it, I say, yes, Lord, take my life, versus those that say, uh-uh, you're not going to rule my life. I'll rule my own. Already at the beginning, just at his birth, just at his naming, his signature, a divided people. I'm going to ask you to stand for the first of our liturgical reading. And it is a very brief, it's one statement I'll make and one statement you'll make that has to do with his birth. Listen and speak out as we declare these truths. He was born to die so I could be born to new life. All right, a second word picture. The word sign, as I mentioned, like a, a sign that's on a road, it uh, points direction. So, second truth we look at today. Through his life, people see a sign which requires them to make a choice. Again, if you have your Bibles, another, what we think of as a Christmas text. There's a reason I said Christmas when I started this thing off, didn't I? <laughs> Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Luke chapter 2, one verse, 34. Here's the context. Many of you know the story. A man, Simeon, an old man, he'd been told of the Lord, don't know exactly how, that he wouldn't die until he saw the little Messiah, the baby Jesus. He's in the temple and he's worshiping. And who shows up, according to the custom of the law, just to follow the custom, 
Here is Joseph and Mary with their baby Jesus. And even as God had promised him, he was able to see that baby. Not only did he see the baby, he took the baby. And in the taking of the baby, he blessed the parents and the baby. But then he gave a prophecy. This prophecy has been read through the years. People so never think about what was said in this great truth. Luke 2.34, it reads like this. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Rise means to follow. Fall means to reject. The prophecy is your little boy here. It's going to be a sign. People are going to see the sign of this young man. And when they do, some will rise and others will fall. You just can't stay neutral when you begin to see the real sign. Now, you can see this sign, but be somewhat confused. And here's the reason. As your outline suggests, if you have your insert, Jesus is repulsive in his claims. I mean, Jesus did not come across too good. If you watched, if you were five minutes early and you watched what would happen if Twitter had been used when Jesus was living, wasn't that fantastic? Well, do you know there was? There was an increase. You see all the followers? Boy, when he came, hey, follow, 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 follow. Because they said, wow, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then they heard his message. And once he began to speak his message, it was repulsive to the masses and particularly to the religious leaders. Why? It was in your face. He is claiming to be king of kings and lord of lords. You eat, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. He says things like, if you, your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. I mean, one thing after the other just turned people away. And then he said, I'm God. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And they're going, this guy's ridiculous. What does he think? Let me tell you, you can't stay neutral when somebody makes a claim on your life. Can you imagine? My wife's name's Carol, for you that wouldn't know her. But can you imagine I meet Carol, and I say, hi, how are you doing? And we just talk for a few minutes. And I say to her, after three minutes of introduction, I say, by the way, God told me that you're to be my wife. And so right now... I want you to understand that we're as good as married. We're going to get married soon, and that's the way it will be. Now, what's the likelihood of her being around today? <laughs> Let me tell you, she'd say, whoa, 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 you think you got your claim on me? Without my, oh, whoa, whoa, uh-uh, it is not going to happen. Well, of course it wouldn't. Jesus came along and he said, by the way, I'm God and I have a claim on your life. And, and, and because of who you are and who I am, it's just that, that I would be your God and that you would follow me. Oh my goodness. But on the other hand, follow the outline. What does it say? Jesus is attractive in his person. That's why it was so confusing. Man, they saw him, and I'm not talking about just attractive, I'm talking about overwhelmingly attractive. They couldn't get away with just... Oh, my goodness, his, his humility, his compassion, his tenderness, and the, it, the list just goes on and on and on. Now, maybe a little different when 
Carol's had an opportunity to spend a lot of time around me and see how sweet and nice and <laughs> caring and maybe not, maybe not a good illustration, but the point is, when I said, let's get married, she says, okay. There was something that attracted her, and so whatever that was, now we're attracted, and it's a whole different story. Do you know, some people see that sign of his life and teachings, and they say it's repulsive. It's all they can see. They don't see how attractive he is. Other people see him and say, oh, you're talking about attractive. But even though that, I don't think I could follow. One of the most, I don't even know how to describe the story I'm about to tell you. But one of the most uh, riveting and, and amazing stories I heard several years ago is a story of a man some of you who are very, very old might remember. His name, Charles Templeton. Probably wouldn't know him because were he still alive, he'd be in his 90s. He was a cohort with Billy Graham, and I know some of our younger people don't even know that name. But probably the world's greatest evangelist in all of history. They were best of best of best of friends. In fact, Billy Graham said at one time, he actually made the statement, he said, there's only one man that I ever really loved, and it was Charles Templeton. Billy Graham would say it himself, everyone knew it. Billy Graham couldn't hold a candle to the intellect, to the speaking capabilities of this young man who came to Christ at 19, at least he thought he did, and went right into ministry alongside of this young man named Billy Graham. We wouldn't know Billy Graham's name today. Everybody that knows both of them say you'd never know his name had this man continued on. But he decided he needed to get some education at Princeton. In the midst of his young career as an evangelist, he decided he couldn't believe in God anymore. He went to Billy Graham his dearest of friends, and he said, I urge you, I beg you, go to Princeton with me, and we reject God. And Billy Graham said, not a way in this world. And he raised every argument possible. Then there was, a, there was an atheist, and now he calls himself an atheist, for years and years and years. Put down God, wrote a book against the belief of God. It's called Farewell to God by Charles Templeton. And there was a, now in the 1990s, there was an atheist that became a follower. Many of you know his name, Lee Strobel, written many great books, wrote the book The Case for Christ. And in fact, when writing that book, he was doing research, and he heard that there was this elderly man in his early 80s who was very sick named Charles Templeton an atheist who used to be an evangelist. And so he said, I want to go interview him. He called and said, yeah, you can come. We talk. And he just took a simple recorder, walked in with it, and he said, can we talk? And I can't take the time to let you hear the first 20 minutes or 15. But I'll tell you what, it's his arguing against the existence of God. The last question that was asked by Lee Strobel, 
He simply asked, what about this man Jesus? Listen to what he says. Here is the greatest human being who has ever existed, had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being that I have ever heard of. There are other wonderfully human beings, but Jesus is Jesus. He's the most, in my view, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. And if I may put it this way, I miss it. Do you not just sense that though he couldn't embrace the claims of Jesus, he'd been introduced to him and he knew enough of him to say, oh, how I miss my Jesus. He didn't have a critical word to say about him, did he? That was the sign. You see the sign and you'll rise or you'll fall. You embrace amidst the repulsiveness of one that would claim right over one's life or you reject you fall. There are a lot of us here, by the grace of God alone and His goodness, has allowed us to see, though at first the claims might appear repulsive, particularly the more religious we were, the more self-righteous we happened to be. But we saw the beauty of His character and who He is. We recognized Him as God, and we fell in love with Him. He became not only our Redeemer, he became not only our Savior, He became as He is in my life and yours. He became a friend. Now we use our responsive reading as we stay seated. I'm going to invite the choir to participate, so sometimes they'll be responding, sometimes all of us will. He suffered temptation, choir, so I can experience victory. He was betrayed, so I might know His faithfulness. He was arrested and bound, so I could be rescued from bondage. He stood trial alone, so I might have an advocate. He was wounded, so I could be healed. He endured mockery, so I could know dignity and joy. He was condemned, so the truth could set me free. He was crowned with thorns so I might crown him with praise. One final word picture, and it is the word sword. If you look at your outlines, third truth we have for the evening. Through his death, people learn that peace is always preceded by a sword. A lot of people never hear this message in Christendom. That same prophecy by Simeon in Luke chapter 2, the very next verse, this is how it reads. And a sword, there it is, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, Joseph and Mary, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is referring in context to a very large sword. It's a peace-yielding sword. 
The, the prophecy is to the parents, yes. Simeon says, Joseph, Mary, you have a lot of pain as you raise this child to his end. But there will also be pain to many others because he's going to be as a sword to the hearts of people. The context of Scripture and other Scriptures alike tell us that's definitely the case. The reality is that there's something bittersweet in this life of Jesus because his life includes his death. And for all of his followers, it would be the same thing, that something would be revealed in the hearts of people that began to get close to him and to know him. There will be a sword in the heart which will bring pain. But at the same time, there will be the ultimate result of peace. So it is bittersweet, is it not? We hear the message, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Isn't that what Jesus is all about, just peace on earth? Well, yes, but with a sword. Even as you would find in a country that is trying to experience peace with opposition at hand, uses war to bring about peace. Or a surgeon would take someone who is deathly ill and would cut deeply and bring great pain in order to find healing. There's bittersweet in the sword that the life of Jesus would bring. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century pastor and theologian, says, when a person becomes a Christian, a new peace comes into his life, but at the same time, a new fight always begins. If you look at our text, it says, to the end that thoughts from our hearts may be revealed. That's what happens. The evil of our heart begins to be revealed. I've noticed as I've worked with men through the years, and women as well, but closely with men, I've noticed that when the heart gets touched by the things of God, it's amazing how we see in and we see it, and oh, it, it devastates us to see what we find. Because you see, the reality is that peace is always preceded by these two. Number one, as in your outline, the peace of, of uh, the sword of repentance always will be preceded. No peace without the sword of repentance. The gospel, you know the good news? Oh, you receive a gift, right? Yeah, that's true. It, it seems pretty easy. Well, it is pretty easy, but very painful because you never get to the place of the good news becoming your own until you see your heart close enough that it grieves you to the point of repentance. Repentance never feels good. It is painful. C.S. Lewis, many of you know that name. He said of repentance, the only way to get peace is to pass through the pain of repentance. What is repentance? I often say it to this congregation. Repentance is taking a step. The first step is just saying, I admit I'm wrong. But it's taking a second step. That's not repentance. The second step says, I grieve over what I did. And I hate what I did. I, I would never want to do it again. I may slip and fall again, but that's not what I intend. But that's even not the fullness of repentance. Repentance is one more step where we say, Lord, I'm coming back to your open arms. And I'm saying that your love is enough for me. I don't need to get revenge. 
to be happy. I, I don't have to be selfish now. I don't have to be mean-spirited. Your love's enough. That's repentance. It's a very, very painful sword, but it is one always there. But there's another sword, so to speak, maybe the other edge of that sword, and it's the sword of obedience. You see, the truth of it is, as Christians, we have life choices, right, Christian? We have a lot of life choices, and the reality of those choices is sometimes it's a choice between comfort and pleasure versus obedience. Never should we tell folks, oh, if you follow the Lord, then it's just comfort. It's just pleasure. No, in fact, the very following of the Lord means obedience, which means often you don't take the route of comfort and pleasure. It can mean great loss, and that's why it's painful. No one wants to experience loss. Never. You see, you watch. The first sword, repentance. What happens when somebody comes to you or comes to me and says, I think you're wrong. I think what you did was inappropriate. I think this, and they come and they bring an accusation against you. I don't care if it's right or wrong, there's something in us that just rises up and will defend every square inch to say, I am as innocent as I can be. And we'll fight for that innocent. We'll be in pain and turmoil because somebody accused me, challenged me. You know what they're saying? Uh-uh. I don't want to feel the pain of repentance. I don't like knowing I'm wrong. It is painful. But many of you know, once we say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, what peace can flood the heart. Same way with God. People say, but the loss, you know, you lose boyfriends and girlfriends. You know that, young people. I lost two girls that I, I know I wanted to date. I knew that they were interested, but... I couldn't pursue. I couldn't go that route. I knew I couldn't. They weren't in love with the Lord. I knew what would happen if I went there. And there's loss. It's real. People are losing jobs. I know of a young lady, I told a story a year ago, that her mother pushed her out of a window because she became a Christian in Egypt. Killed her because she turned to Christ and left Islam. People are losing all kind of things, life included. Because there is a sword, the sword of repentance and the sword of obedience. I tell you this, only way to get to peace is through pain. Sometimes it's the pain of guilt that disobedience brings. Sometimes it is the pain of loss which obedience brings. It's never easy, but it's good. Responsive reading regarding the death of Jesus. Let's read now. Let's once again go to our liturgy. He was nailed to the cross, congregation, so I might escape judgment. He was stretched out between thieves, so I could know the reach of his love. He suffered thirst, so I can drink living water. He said, It is finished. So I could begin my walk of faith. He was God's lamb slain, so I could claim his sacrifice as my own. He was forsaken by the Father, so I would never be rejected.
He chose the shame of weakness so I can know the hope of glory. He shed his blood so I can be white as snow. His heart was pierced so mine could be whole. He died and was buried so the grave could not hold me. Well, I think once we understand the signature, the sign, and the sword, well, little needs to really be said about the resurrection. You know, the resurrection didn't divide. Not really. Well, people who say, did he, did he not? That wasn't, the, that wasn't the dividing point. Not really. See, the resurrection really became something for the believer to help substantiate, to help us understand and know, but also to enable us to have the great benefit. Because you see, as he's risen, we're risen with him. That's the beauty of this thing that we call Easter. It's he is risen. Well, that's good because he wouldn't be God if he weren't. And we understand that, and, and that's part of Easter. But the great reality, folks, is that you and I have the privilege to be risen with him. That's what it's all about. And so as our last and concluding truth says, because of his resurrection, life begins for us now. I was listening to secular radio, sports radio. A professional football player, Christian, but known as a professional football player. He was being interviewed by a Jewish host, and it was right at Easter time. And so the question came, it kind of shocked me when he turned to him and said, you know, you're a Christian. And he says, does the resurrection trump all events in Christianity as most important? And the wonderful, beautiful answer, no, but it validates all the others. And it guarantees new life. Physically, as well as spiritually, for all eternity on a physical new earth that we can live and have life forever with our God. But also that we can have life right this moment, beginning now. It's Jesus put it this way. He said, unless you die, you cannot come alive. Jesus could not rise from the dead had he not first died. And you know, you and I have to die. Die? What do you mean? Physically? No, no, no. It's a death to ourself. It's where we say, yes, I see. I see the signature. And I say, save me, manage me. Oh, yeah, I see the sign. And, and that's the direction I want to go. I want to rise. I want to follow. It's someone who says, yeah, I, I understand the sword is part of it. This is not just all about what brings comfort. This is about what brings a holy life. And you know what? I'll take the sword with the repentance that goes with it, the obedience that follows. I'll take the sword so I might die, that I might come alive. That's what it is. It's a new life, and it, life begins right now. The Apostle Paul, he correctly he read the signature right. I'll tell you, Apostle Paul, he, he saw the sign and he interpreted the sign correctly. 
He saw the sword and he embraced the sword full-hearted. And as a result, he tells the rest of us, Galatians 6, or Galatians 2.20, it reads like this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Hear that? I've been crucified. Wait, you're dead. Oh, yeah, but nevertheless, I live. Oh, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's why life begins now. Where indwelled is amazing that he could rise from the dead. He can indwell the heart of his people. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I still live fleshly. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the good news. That's the story of somebody who has embraced the signature, the sign, and the sword. That's what it means to be a real Christian. Let me conclude saying this. I bet you've got to be a lot of folks. I mean, we've got more people here than normal on Saturday. <laughs> Why? Well, it's Easter. There's got to be a lot of us. got to be a lot of us that are kind of saying, I'm exploring, I'm interested, I'm here for a reason. I'm investigating. Or I want to. One of the things that I have longed in the life of this church from 36 years ago, it's a safe place. It better be a safe place or I don't want to be here. I don't want it to be a place for the religious and the self-right. Uh-uh. Let this be a place for real followers and those who want to be. And let it be a safe place which says you answer the questions that are being asked. Closing word to all, I hope what you've heard and understood is the attractiveness of an incredible Savior and the challenge of a difficult message, his message, his life. I hope you don't see it. I mean, a message has been sugar-coated because that's not what it's, it doesn't do any good. If we just sit and say, come, come, it's one of one, you got it all, it's all good, it's all easy, all, you wouldn't last. So you want to know what it's really all about? You just remember this. It's all about signature, sign, and sword. You keep thinking those three words and see if the resurrection doesn't come alive and Easter becomes the greatest day ever. We conclude, it's very brief, but we conclude with our last liturgy as it deals with the resurrection of our Savior. He rose again so I might experience eternal life. He is known by his scars, so I will take up my cross and follow him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and the time we've experienced together in worship and on this year, grand day, we celebrate the risen Christ. Thank you, our Christ, that you have been who you are and you live today. Thank you that we can know you and love you. Thank you for your friendship to us. And bless everyone here as we seek to investigate more. May we find a love relationship born in the heart as we go to the cross and see what you did for us. And we bow the knee and we find you our friend. Granted, we pray. In the great name of Christ.
Center Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia, with services Saturday night at 6 and Sunday morning at 9 and 1045. Please visit our website for more information at www.perimeter.org. Be sure to visit the media resources section to give us your feedback and find other messages from our teaching team.